The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. An entire generation is now saddled with unsustainable debt in exchange for an attempt, at least, at a college degree. In August, President Joe Biden announced that his administration is forgiving hundreds of billions of dollars in federal student loan debt. The Department of Education hasn't even put out the application to receive student loan forgiveness yet, but there are already five lawsuits challenging Biden's plan. Two of those lawsuits are being brought by Republican attorneys general in Arizona, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and South Carolina. Missouri Republican Senator Roy Blunt said the program is just unfair. Unfair uh, to people who didn't go to college because they didn't think they could afford it. Unfair to people who had paid their loans back. Unfair to people who got uh, higher education in an area that the government didn't make loans. Uh, and just bad economics. My guest is Mark Kantrowitz, an expert in student loans and financial aid. Start by just telling us a little about Biden's student loan relief plan. So Biden's uh, student loan forgiveness plan forgives up to ten or twenty thousand dollars of student loan debt, depending on whether the borrower received a federal Pell Grant while they were in college. The higher amount is for Pell Grant recipients. There is an income cap at one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars for single borrowers and two hundred fifty thousand dollars for borrowers who are married filing jointly or head of household. And the application for this loan forgiveness is supposed to come out in early October, so any day now. And borrowers have until December 31st to file the form. Forgiveness should occur four to six weeks after the borrower applies for it. So if a borrower wants their forgiveness to occur before the restart repayment in January 2023, they should aim to file the form by November 15. Is it only for college or is it for graduate school as well? It includes undergraduate and graduate student loan debt. It is only available for federal student loans and parent loans that are held by or on behalf of the U.S. Department of Education. So loans that were in the Federal Family Education Loan Program that are commercially held are not eligible for forgiveness. Now, a borrower could have consolidated those loans into the direct loan program, and a federal direct consolidation loan does qualify, but they would have had to apply for it by uh, before September 29 of 2022. Do you have a, an idea of what percentage of student loan borrowers would be covered by this? Well, the income caps um, reduce the number of borrowers by somewhere between 5 and 10%. As far as being eligible for the higher $20,000 of forgiveness, it's somewhere between 50 and 60% um, of borrowers received a federal Pell Grant while they were undergraduate students. So now it's hard to keep track of the lawsuits because they keep on coming, the challenges to this plan. 
how tough will it be for the opponents to get over the standing issue, that they'll be harmed by the plan? Well, I think that is the key issue, that the plaintiffs are going to have a lot of difficulty demonstrating that they have the legal standing to file a lawsuit. First of all, you have to demonstrate that you were harmed. And there are certain categories of harm that don't establish legal standing. For example, taxpayers do not have the legal standing to file a lawsuit against the federal government because of a 2007 U.S. Supreme Court ruling. It was Hine versus Freedom from Religion Foundation. And also, borrowers who do not qualify for student loan forgiveness can't demonstrate that they were harmed because you're not getting something. That doesn't mean you're worse off. And also, the Higher Education Act of 1965 does not provide borrowers with a private right of action. Now, one of these lawsuits tried to argue that the Administrative Procedures Act has a requirement for notice and comment, public comment, and that two borrowers were not afforded the opportunity to provide public comments, but they obviously didn't read the HEROES Act of 2003, which specifically exempts actions taken under the HEROES Act from the requirement for public comment. The sole requirement is that they publish it in the Federal Register, which the Biden administration has done. So I mean, that trying to argue for legal standing just falls completely flat based on the plain language of the law. As you know, Republican state AGs of Nebraska, Missouri, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, and South Carolina filed suit, and a separate suit by Arizona. And Arizona says that this plan will harm the state's economy, increase its cost of borrowing, and limit the ability of the state attorney general's office to recruit legal talent. That sounds like they're really reaching. Well, they're kind of throwing the entire kitchen sink at this, hoping that something makes it through to demonstrate legal standing. Because once one of these lawsuits demonstrates legal standing, then the arguments they can bring about the legality of the president's plan are much more powerful. And I believe that if they can make it to the U.S. Supreme Court, the president's student loan forgiveness plan will ultimately get blocked. There are a lot of reasons for that. But the challenge is in demonstrating legal standing. You have to establish that the harm was direct and not speculative, not vague. And, and most of these lawsuits don't satisfy that. Now, with the six-state attorney general lawsuit, they're trying to argue that the state is harmed because one aspect of the president's plan was allowing borrowers in the FFEL program to consolidate their loans into the direct loan program. And that would then reduce the loan volume that the state manages and services in the FFEL program, therefore causing financial harm. And that would have been a good argument, except the U.S. Department of Education responded by saying, okay, those program borrowers are no longer eligible. As of September 29, if you apply for a consolidation, that consolidation loan is ineligible. And this demonstrates a flawed legal strategy in the five lawsuits that have been filed to date, which is they jumped the gun. They decided to file a lawsuit before the U.S. Department of Education had given any loans or even published the student loan forgiveness application. And once they published the application and start collecting applications and start forgiving loans, the program is more finalized. 
And at that point is when you should file a lawsuit. By filing the lawsuits too soon, they gave the U.S. Department of Education the opportunity to change the terms of the program to eliminate legal standing for for these litigants. It seems like Republican states and conservative organizations are against this plan. Is it just political or are there, you know, real consequences that they're concerned about? Well, I mean, it's partly political, but it's also partly, I mean, the president is using an executive order to forgive around $400 billion of student loans. That's a right that's usually reserved to Congress. I mean, only Congress has the power of the purse. And if you start allowing the executive branch to appropriate funds, then uh, there's no stopping what a Democratic administration or a Republican administration can do. And some people are very strongly opposed to it. There's also the financial fairness considerations. And for some reason, people are taking the financial fairness aspects of the president's plan much more personally. And it's not, oh, there are certain groups of individuals who aren't benefiting or taxpayer dollars is being used to it. It's my taxpayers' dollars are being used to it. Or I'm not qualifying. I'm not receiving forgiveness. And so the, the arguments relate to what about people who already paid off their student loans or people who didn't borrow because they saved before college or worked several jobs while in college? Or what about people who just didn't go to college and they don't have a college degree, yet they are going to be paying to repay someone else's student loans? Or what about future generations of students who aren't going to get this one-time forgiveness? So those are the kind of, is this right type of arguments. But then there's also a lot of negative animus concerning uh, the other party. It's something that uh, they're using to try to draw a political distinction to fire up their base. Um, Potentially, this is going to backfire on them. And this is a kind of heads-I-win, tails-you-lose scenario for Democrats. If they succeed in providing the forgiveness, they have a lot of very happy borrowers, tens of millions of them, who are presumably more likely to vote Democrat or more likely to get out and vote. If Republicans succeed in blocking it, then that clear distinction between the Democrats and Republicans still helps the Democrats get out the vote uh, because then they'll say, well, the only way to get this to happen is if you vote in a few more Democrats, especially in the Senate, and can retain the House in order to pass this through legislation. And student loan issues have been winning issues for Democrats in the past. In 2006, they had six pledges for 2006. They called it 6406, one of which was to slash the interest rates on student loans in half. Because of that, Democrats took over the House and the Senate that year, and then they implemented their promise. So this has worked for them in the past. See if it works for them this time. Now, you referred to this. I want to talk about the merits argument. Is it that the president doesn't have the power to do what he did by executive order? Well, and that's part of it. There are a lot of um, aspects of the president's plan that are potentially uh, going too far. So, uh, first of all, they assert that they have the legal authority to do this because of the HEROES Act of 2003. But the HEROES Act of 2003 doesn't explicitly authorize a loan forgiveness program. It provides for certain waivers, 
and they're using an expansive reading of that waiver authority to say they have the authority to create a loan forgiveness program. On the other hand, Congress has other loan forgiveness programs like teacher loan forgiveness, public service loan forgiveness, disability discharges that they have explicitly passed. And there have been attempts to pass legislation to implement something like the president's plan, but they usually haven't been reported out of committee. So they can't get it through Congress. So now they got the president to do it through executive action. There's something called the major questions doctrine, uh, which we most recently saw in the 2022 U.S. Supreme Court ruling in West Virginia versus EPA, that cases involving vast economic and political significance, such as massive spending, and $400 billion certainly qualifies, requires a clear and unambiguous statutory text authorizing that agency action. And this isn't something that's brand new in 2022 with the current court. And in 2001, there was a U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Whitman versus uh, American Trucking, where the ruling said Congress does not hide elephants in mouse holes. So if you're, Congress intended to have massive student loan forgiveness, and this is forgiving a quarter of federal student loan debt, they would have explicitly authorized it. And as I said before, only Congress has the power of the purse. It's from the U.S. Constitution, and there's also a law called the Anti-Deficiency Act. So they can't delegate that authority to the executive branch. And they didn't authorize spending hundreds of billions of dollars on a new loan forgiveness program. And then even if you think that, okay, this is all okay, they don't satisfy the legal requirements of the HEROES Act of 2003. The waiver authority in the HEROES Act of 2003 is limited to ensuring that affected individuals are not placed in a worse position financially. Not worse off does not mean better off. Now, this authority was used to implement the payment pause and interest waiver because that put the eligible loans essentially in hibernation. They're going to be the same when repayments restarts as they were prior to the pandemic. Student loan forgiveness, on the other hand, puts the borrowers in a better financial position by reducing their loan balances. So that's saying it doesn't match the textual language of the HEROES Act. Also, the definition of an affected individual, and I'm quoting here, is someone who has suffered direct economic hardship as a direct result of a national emergency. The word direct appears twice, extra emphasis. And the president hasn't limited the forgiveness to borrowers who experience direct economic hardship as a result of the pandemic. I mean, targeting it by income is not the same as targeting based on a decrease in income. And I, I think there are I mean, a lot of policy proponents who would have preferred that the president's plan be much more targeted to borrowers who are um, negatively impacted by the pandemic or borrowers who are struggling financially, borrowers who are in uh, default or long-term delinquency. A third of borrowers who are senior citizens are in default on their federal student loans, half of those age 75 and older. So this just give everyone forgiveness. Some people object to that. Now, the, the other arguments that have been made in some of these lawsuits include equal protection clause of the U.S. Constitution and trying to argue that the president's plan was motivated by a goal of advancing racial equity and narrowing the racial wealth gap. I think that's a very tenuous argument and likely wouldn't succeed. 
And then there's the Administrative Procedures Act, which uh, we discussed before, and it's exceeding statutory authority, arbitrary and capricious agency action. Again, that's a weaker argument than the uh, power of the purse type arguments and the failure to fulfill the requirements of the HEROES Act of 2003. It seems like what the challengers here need is a temporary injunction to stop the plan from going into effect. And a federal judge who dismissed a Wisconsin group's legal challenge, Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, said that even if the group did have standing for the case to proceed, it's unclear if they would succeed in their request to temporarily block the plan. That's a high burden to get an injunction to block the plan. Right. Well, a temporary restraining order or preliminary injunction would temporarily block the plan would suspend it until the court had an opportunity to process the case, have a testimony and review everything and reach a, uh, a conclusion. So if a case surpasses the legal standing hurdle, it isn't clear whether they would succeed in getting uh, a restraining order or injunction. But if they did, that would certainly delay forgiveness. And then ultimately, though, I think they would probably succeed in getting a permanent block to it if it reached high enough a level of a court because of the reasons that we just discussed. So there are some procedural hurdles that they have to meet. And if they can't establish legal standing, it doesn't matter whether their arguments concerning the president's legal authority have merit or not. They won't be heard. They won't be considered. Suppose that none of these groups can get a restraining order or a temporary injunction, and suppose the plan goes forward and Mm -hmm. loans are forgiven, and then Biden loses in court. Then what happens? Well, there is a significant possibility that any borrower who already received forgiveness would get to keep it. And the courts are reluctant to claw back benefits like that after the fact. So once the application becomes available, it is in the borrower's best interest to submit it as soon as possible, because if they succeed in receiving forgiveness, they might well get to keep it. Thanks, Mark. That's Mark Kantrowitz, an expert in student loans and financial aid. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com. A Fifth Circuit appeals court judge, James Ho, says he won't hire law clerks from Yale Law School in the future, citing cancel culture. In a keynote address to Kentucky chapters of the Conservative Federalist Society, the judge said, I don't want to cancel Yale. I want Yale to stop canceling people like me. Judge Ho encouraged students thinking about law school to think about academic environments that will help them grow. He graduated from the University of Chicago Law School. Ho's unusual vow not to hire students from Yale is attracting criticism from some judges but others are joining his boycott. My guest is Carl Tobias, a professor at the University of Richmond Law School. Can you explain the reasons why Judge Ho is essentially blacklisting Yale students? Well, 
he says himself that he's concerned about the lack of civility, I think, uh, at Yale, especially where there are outside speakers who come who might be pretty conservative politically. And I think some incidents have happened at Yale that troubled him. And so he has said he will not consider Yale students going forward which is unfortunate, regrettable, as his colleague Jerry Smith said, who is equally conservative, but says he enjoys hiring the Yale clerks, and the recent ones have been excellent. So let me go back for a moment. Do most conservative judges and conservative Supreme Court justices hire clerks who are conservative? Yes, to some extent, but not exclusively. And Judges whom everyone respects, like Justice Scalia, often wanted to have what one clerk called counterclerks, who took very different views. And I think Professor Seinfeld, I think at Michigan, was saying he was such a clerk for Justice Scalia, and they hardly ever agreed on anything <laughs> politically, but he enjoyed you know, the back and forth. And uh, I think Justice Scalia did, too. And so it may be counterproductive to not have clerks, as many judges like to do, who will take the opposite perspective from the judge and sometimes win over the judge on the argument. Because looking at it, I mean, it seems like very narrow-minded to me, because to put it in perspective, some of the Supreme Court's most conservative conservatives went to Yale. Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Brett Kavanaugh. Senator Josh Hawley, very conservative, J.D. Vance, even Stuart Rhodes, who's the leader of the Oath Keepers, <laughs> went to Yale. So, I mean, there are conservatives coming out of Yale, and by doing this, the judge is punishing them. Well, I think that's true to some extent. And Judge Smith, his colleague on the Fifth Circuit, said, I'm happy to hire them. Please send more. And I think a number of judges feel very similarly. So it it is regrettable and unfortunate for the school and for its students and the judges who may not take excellent students because of that. So I I think it is unfortunate. Should a judge be making comments like this? You know, judges are supposed to speak through their opinions. Should they be making comments like this about basically culture war issues? Well, I think Bloomberg actually had a, a news article where one of your reporters quoted Arthur Hellman at Pittsburgh, long-established and well-respected uh, federal court scholar who even raised the possibility that this would violate the canons. Uh, I don't know whether that's true, but he is an expert, and he suggested that. As a law professor, do you think a student would ever turn down Yale Law School if they were admitted because certain conservative judges would not take them as clerks? I doubt it. They probably have many, many opportunities. And so it's really the judge's loss because they receive such a fine education and they're extremely well qualified. And so they can often write their own tickets anyway, but many of them want to clerk and so they would lo- could potentially lose that opportunity. The Senate has confirmed 25 of President Joe Biden's nominees to federal appellate courts and 58 nominees to federal district courts. But 13 circuit and 44 district nominees await Senate action. So with the midterm outcome potentially changing the composition of the Senate, 
Progressives are pressing Democrats to expedite the judicial nominations process. I've been talking to Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. So the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to hold a hearing for judicial nominees during the October recess. And progressives say that these are the same tactics that Republicans used in the Trump era to move nominations faster. But some, like Senator Grassley says, no, this isn't what Republicans did. Is this what Republicans did? Well, yes. And he was the Republican (laughs) who chaired the Judiciary Committee when this happened in 2017, but more pertinently in 2018, when Justice Kavanaugh was a nominee and under consideration. I believe during the recess that summer, 2018, there were two hearings um, that Grassley held when the Senate was in recess, um, and one for six district nominees and an appellate nominee for the Second Circuit. And so they set the precedent, and Chair Durbin has been very meticulous about not going any further than Republicans did uh, during the Trump administration in terms of changing precedent. And so he still is entitled to at least one more in the uh, session, the recess right now that they are currently in. Uh, And I think he should consider that. So, and the progressive groups have also suggested he ought to um, hold hearings every week instead of every two weeks, which is the custom, as well as have more nominees on the panels. So maybe you would have uh, four or five rather than just three district nominees in each uh, hearing. And he's resisted that? Well, to some extent, but he he has four coming up because he only has one appellate nominee on Wednesday. So he's allowing for uh, a fifth to be added there, um, which makes sense. But it's clear that some nominees will not even have hearings. And the bottleneck, when they come back in the lame duck, uh, will be moving people through committee because I think there are only 20 days I counted after the 14th when they return uh, before the end of the year, given the holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, when the Senate will be in session. And so under this schedule that Chair Durbin has followed, uh, at most there could be maybe two um, more hearings, and there are many more uh, nominees than can be accommodated in two hearings who won't have had hearings by the end of the year. Let's say the Republicans retake the Senate. In the lame duck, can they hold up the committee hearing by not showing up? Well, they could, but that would be very extreme. If you remember back in 2020, after Biden had defeated Trump for the presidency, the Senate, controlled by Republicans, then went on to confirm one appellate nominee and 13 district nominees uh, during the lame duck session that they conducted. And so I don't think, this is just a midterm lame duck uh, that's coming up. And so I don't see how Republicans can protest that uh, action should Democrats lose the majority. 
So I, you know, I, I would encourage the Democrats to go forward and, and confirm as many people as they can, regardless of who um, wins the majority. And by the way, we may not even know by 2023, January, who the majority in the Senate is, because a number of elections may be contested and be very close. True. So have the Democrats, have the Senate Democrats been prioritizing circuit court nominees? Yes, they certainly have. Uh, If you noticed, since uh, returning from the August recess, the only people confirmed have been appellate nominees. And so they've been focused like a laser on those, and no district nominees have been confirmed since back in the summer, um, I think August. And so there are 15 of them now on the floor, and there'll be more to come as soon as they return in November, and not so many circuit nominees, I believe. Uh, I think there are five on the floor, and then there are a few others, three or four more, who either have had hearings or are in the process. So how many circuit court openings are there? There are nine current vacancies and seven future vacancies. With the calendar as it is, are they likely to be able to fill those before the end of the year? Probably not all of them, but a a number of them they will, because five are on the floor now. Several more are likely to be on the floor in November, and then I think they could be confirmed. There are only two, I see, who have not had hearings. One will have one on Wednesday. Anthony Johnstone for the uh, Ninth Circuit out of Montana. And then there are two others, Jabari Wombo for the Tenth Circuit and DeAndrea uh, Benjamin for the Fourth Circuit, who have yet to have hearings, and hopefully they'll have them in November. So they could go through all of those, but there's still four, I believe, uh, vacancies that have no nominees. Let's just talk about some of the Circuit Court nominees who have been confirmed. So former public defender... Ariana Freeman? Yes, for the Third Circuit, the first woman of color on the Third Circuit and former federal public defender. She lost the vote first time, 47 to 50, but when everyone was there, subsequently she did secure confirmation. And they filled uh, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson's spot on the D.C. Circuit. Yes, Florence Pan, who was elevated from the D.C. Superior Court to Justice Jackson's district court seat when she was elevated to the D.C. Circuit, and then it happened again uh, when Justice Jackson went to the Supreme Court. Florence Pan was elevated to the D.C. Circuit from the D.C. District. Good so, person to follow. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And Florence Pan is very well qualified, and everyone agrees, and uh, excellent addition to the D.C. Circuit. And so what other uh, circuit court nominees stand out to you? Well, of course, Brad Garcia for the D.C. Circuit. He is awaiting a a confirmation vote and is very well qualified and uh, young for the D.C. Circuit, the second most important court in the country. Then there also on either side of him, there are two black magistrate judges, Doris Pryor for the Seventh Circuit and Dana Douglas for the Fifth Circuit, who are waiting on the floor. So I think those three will will come up. 
And then there's Tamika Montgomery Reeves, who sits on the Delaware Supreme Court, and Cindy Chung, who is U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Pennsylvania. They are both uh, on the floor Third Circuit nominees, and they are both women of color and very qualified and had strong support. And then there's some others who are somewhat more controversial, um, and we're waiting to see uh, what will happen. Nancy Abudu needs a discharge vote because she had a tie vote in committee for the 11th Circuit. Uh, Rachel Bloomcats for the 6th Circuit, uh, I think, hasn't is not yet on the floor. And then Julie Rickleman has only had a hearing, hasn't yet gone before the committee for a vote. What makes um, them controversial? It varies. For example, um, I think it, it was the kind of cases that uh, Abudu and Bloomcats and Rickleman who represented the opponents uh, in Dobbs, who who basically said Dobbs was wrongly decided. Um, and Rickleman uh, argued before the court in that case and a number of other uh, cases involving uh, reproductive freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bloomcats did a fair amount of environmental work and some, I think, voter rights uh, cases that some GOP can senators were concerned about. Abudu, I think, did a fair amount of federal defender kind of work, um, mostly, I think, under the auspices of the Southern Poverty Law Center. There's a nominee for a district court position in Washington that would be only one of a handful of federal judges who have a disability? Yes, in Washington state, you're correct. Jamal Whitehead, I think, is his name. Yes. And he's had a hearing, and uh, Bloomberg reported on that uh, piece about uh, how few um, people with uh, disabilities or conditions, physical or mental, are on the federal bench. Um, And and I think partly talking about perhaps the stigma that attaches, um, but we do have a number of serving federal judges and um, Whitehead will be a fine addition to sit on the Western District of Washington in Seattle. And he had a hearing and I think did very well. So he, he will be confirmed. We've talked before about the Biden administration trying to not only open up the judiciary to, you know, racial diversity, but also diversity in their prior jobs, more federal public defenders, civil rights attorneys, et cetera. Are they also trying to open up the judiciary to more judges with disabilities? Or was this just happened to be? No, I think they are when they can uh, and have an opportunity. And I think, you know, a number of lawyers who are quite good um, lawyers do have some kind of disability of some sort. And so the experiential diversity uh, that Biden has Uh, orchestrated has been incredible in terms, as you suggest, of the types of people. I mean, for a long time in Democratic and Republican administrations, um, we have had mostly former federal and state prosecutors and people from big law firms, mostly defense counsel in civil uh, matters. Um, So it's refreshing to have, and that kind of diversity is important um, to have federal public defenders, uh, state public defenders, people who, as you suggest, do consumer law, legal aid, 
representing all kinds of, of people in disputes who may have a different perspective. And that could be good for the judicial decision-making process, uh, inspires confidence in the courts on the part of the public and, and people who are involved in federal litigation. So I think those are all valuable attributes that these nominees bring. Carl, do you have the number so far of appointees, of Biden appointees, to the circuit courts and the district courts? Do you know the number? Yes, I do. Um, to the appeals courts, we have 25, and to the district courts, we have 58. And where um, does that put him as far as other presidents? Until recently, I think he was setting records for the first two years um, because of this recess necessitated by the campaigning and the close nature of the Senate. Um, he won't do as well as he might have if the Senate had stayed in. They were supposed to work two weeks in October, and that didn't happen. They just canceled that. Um, and so he would still be you know, relatively competitive with a number of recent presidents, I think still many more than Obama uh, appointed, but probably closer to maybe Bush and Clinton in terms of numbers. Though I think the second year of Clinton, they appointed something like 113, and Biden was chair of judiciary then, so he deserves some credit for that. But they really moved people that second year. Uh, and Trump moved very quickly, you know, once, um, once they got into the second year, uh, especially on the appeals courts, with 54 total. And Obama only had 55 total um, in his eight years. And Trump, you know, had one less in his four years. Well, Obama, was the problem, you know, the pace of the White House proposing nominees, or was it Senator Mitch McConnell holding things up? It was a combination. I think the Obama administration started very slowly, um, the first year only, I think, confirmed three appellate and nine district. Uh, it was accelerated substantially after that, but could never catch up. Then, as you suggest, at the end, in 2015-2016, only uh, primarily at the instigation of McConnell, who also blocked uh, for all of the uh, 2016 Merrick Garland for the Supreme Court, only 20 uh, judges were confirmed, and uh, McConnell and uh, Grassley just delayed them horribly. And it was the fewest appointees since Harry Truman's time in that that two-year span. And so that's uh, and that allowed Trump to then walk in and have 105 vacancies he could fill. I just before I let you go, I wanted to ask you your reaction to the way. Now, new Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson took on her first two oral arguments. She kind of just jumped in, and actually she spoke more than any other justice in those arguments. Well, I think she was ready to roll. Um, <laughs> she she had already, you know, had a decade almost on the district bench and brief tenure on the D.C. Circuit and withstood criticism uh, in her hearing and performed very professionally, and she's uh, ready and quite able and showed it in the first arguments, and I expect we'll see much more, especially this term. And we'll see how her week two on the bench goes. Thanks so much, Carl. That's Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show.
Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.